Well, it has been said that the most divisive thing someone can preach about or the divisive things is sin, judgment, the end times, money, and politics. Well, I thought while Pastor Jesse is still on vacation, I'd try to fit them all into one sermon and let him pick up the pieces upon his return. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. Now, in my defense, all of these themes are very prevalent in John's Apocalypse, the book of Revelation. Certainly much there about sin and therefore God's judgment, his righteous judgment against sin. We find in Revelations much about the end times. That's generally the, the focus of the book, especially in more modern uh, uh, considerations. But we also find much about economics, particularly worldly economics. We find much about political powers of the world. But I would argue that foremost in the book of Revelation, that this book, this vision, this apocalypse is about worship. It asks the question, who will you worship? And it also seeks, I would argue, to develop a theology of how we should worship, oftentimes through these angelic songs that will be sung for all eternity, like the one that we find in our text for this morning. One of the interesting things about our text for this morning is this song instructs us to worship God and particularly to worship his justice, his wrath against evil. I don't know if that's one of the things that often comes to mind when you think I worship God based on his righteous indignation. Generally, we think of his love and grace and mercy, and, and rightly so. But I want to argue that in our text this morning, we find this great multitude that is worshiping God because of his judgment, because of his righteousness. And as we consider this this morning, I want to do so under three headings. First, a chorus of the victors, second, the judgment of the wicked, and then finally, a testimony of blood. So as we come to our passage this morning, as we come to this song, we once again, as we have seen over and over and over again this summer, we find a, a new song, a song of victory, a song that has changed the circumstances of the singer. And to understand this song, I would, I would argue that we first have to get to know the singer a little bit. Who is it that is singing this song? Well, Revelation 15 says this, that it is those who conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. Well, what exactly is, is going on here in these strange words? Well, this harkens back to previous uh, previous sections of Revelation where we, we find in two ways that there is a great beast that will enter into world history and will lead many astray. That many will turn from Yahweh and receive the beast's image or, or the number of the beast. 666 is what Revelation tells us. A, a number that can certainly have relevance for certain individuals throughout history, perhaps in the future, but, but I would argue that ultimately this number 666 shows us a picture of incompleteness, 
Throughout Revelation, we find seven being the number of Sabbath, being the number of rest, being the number of completion. Even this passage for this morning talks about these the uh, this seven bowls of wrath being the the end the finishing of God's wrath well the 666 this infinite number of sixes shows that there is a mark of one who will promise much but the end just will not deliver what the lamb can deliver a seven a rest a, a sabbath Ultimately, we find in Revelation that the inhabitants of the earth can be divided into two groups, those that follow the lamb, these victors, and and those that don't, those that follow the beast, those that receive this mark of the beast, this 666. And if you think through the Bible, the whole scripture speaks in different ways about these two groups, doesn't it? We find sheep versus Wolves, we find wheat versus tare, elects versus reprobate. In the previous chapter, it's, it's wheat versus, versus grapes. There's this constant dichotomy of two groups of people, those that will follow the lamb, those that will follow the beast. Well, as we find in our text this morning, our singers are those that have followed the lamb. And because of this, they too receive a mark according to chapter 14, but it's the mark of the Father. It's his name placed upon them. If we flip back to Revelation 14, we get a little bit more information about this group. Let's take a look real quick. 14, beginning in in verse one. Then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. And with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Again, contrasting this group with a group that has the mark of the beast written upon them. And I heard a voice from heaven like a roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing their harps, which we again see in chapter 15. But as the text goes on, it gives us some interesting information about this group's ethical uh, character, doesn't it? This group, one, sang a song that no one except for them could know. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins, it says. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the lamb. And in their mouth, no lie was found, for they are blameless. So here we find this 144,000, a number indicating completeness. This is the full number of God's chosen ones, those who have been redeemed. They're playing hearts, they're singing before the throne, and they're singing this new song, a victory song. A song not unlike the song we looked at last week from Revelation 5. Except again, in this case, it says that no one can learn the song except for those that are singing it. But it also says that this group is completely blameless. In both word and in deed, no deceit from their mouth, no sexual corruption in their bodies, not, not even lawful sexual union, it says. They've completely devoted themselves to the lamb. It says they follow him wherever he goes. 
They are righteous. They are just. And because of this ethical reality, they can sing a song with fullness of heart, with full conviction, with gladness about God's justice, about his judgment. And they can sing it because they don't fear it, because they're blameless. No fear for what God has for the evil one. And so it is in Revelation 15 that they sing a song about this justice. Well, how do we know this? Well, let's consider it. Revelation 15, let's look at the song briefly. Great and amazing are your deeds, it begins, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. If you look at all of these phrases that make up this song, it's almost like a greatest hits of Old Testament worship where these specific phrases are used to respond to God's salvation, particularly when God comes and defeats unrighteousness, when he comes and defeats an enemy, when God comes in judgment against the enemies of Israel. Who will not fear and glorify your name is directly from Jeremiah 10, as the prophet speaks against God's judgment against all the idolatrous nations. All the nations will come and worship before you for your righteous acts have been revealed as a combo of Psalm 86 and Psalm 98, where the psalmist praises God for bringing salvation to the righteous and putting an end to the wicked. And in the very first line of the song, great and amazing are your deeds is the exact words that the Israelites use as they look upon the plagues in Egypt, God's wrath against this nation who had held them captive. They look at these plagues and they say, great and amazing are your deeds. If you'll notice, there's, there's much in this passage that points us back to Egypt and the Exodus, isn't there? I mean, first we we find that the judgment that these angels are bringing are seven plagues, which would probably catch our attention. Going back to Egypt, an echo of the Exodus. We find the 144,000 standing by a sea like glass, which if you look at Jewish interpreters, they will often say that once the Red Sea had folded in on the armies of Egypt, God stilled it like glass the sea that was often a picture of chaos, one that you feared was stilled completely. In addition, John says that these great victors, not only sang this song that we find in Revelation, but they sang the song of Moses. (laughs) For some reason, they're communicating the same ideas. What is these ideas? Well, It is that the singers of these songs are celebrating God's justice against wicked. They're celebrating God's righteousness against their enemies. In the case of Egypt, God had wiped out horse, chariot, and rider. He had brought judgment upon the Egyptians. And in doing, he had brought salvation for his people. As we continue In this passage in Revelation, we find this reference to the the tabernacle, the, the temple, the holy of holies. 
John says, after I looked in the sanctuary of the tent or tabernacle of witness in heaven was opened just as the heavenly tabernacle, the heavenly sanctuary was open to Moses right after the Exodus. And he's revealed plans to build the earthly tabernacle. John in this vision really wants us to be thinking Exodus motif and particularly how God brought salvation to Egypt or to Israel by defeating their enemies, by bringing about justice. Just like Israel sang a song of victory on the bank of the Red Sea, this 144,000 redeemed sings on the bank of this sea of glass for the beast had, thrown in, had been thrown into this sea. He had been defeated. And this chaotic sea is made still. Probably brings other images to mind in Jesus' ministry of calming the sea. Seems to be something that God often does as a picture of his power and his might and his justice. Well, if first we find this chorus of the victor, a chorus of those who had conquered because enemies had conquered, we, we then must ask the question, okay, who does judgment fall upon? In this case, in Revelation 15, who, who is the enemy? And so it's that that I want to consider second this morning, the judgment of the wicked. Well, throughout Revelation, we find much about judgment. We find much about how God's wrath will, will look. And in, in many cases, there's a lot of repetition in the book of Revelation where we see God's justice in the end from different vantage points. Well, in our text for this morning, we are told that we see the last of his judgment, the, the, the completeness of his judgment which probably makes the most sense here with these seven angels and these seven plagues, again, all numbers of completeness. We're seeing the final picture of God's wrath against the unjust, against the wicked. Well, as we make our way through Revelation, this, this group, this group of those who follow the beast are laid out in several ways. We see that they follow the beast because of his great promise of power and conquest. Daniel, when it talks about the beast, promises the same thing, that there'll be nations that rise and they will lead many astray because they promise power. The beast in Revelation 13 is seen as rising out of the sea with 10 horns and seven heads and 10 crowns, all, all pictures of power, all pictures of great influence. And it says that all authority has been given to the beast over every tribe and people and language and nation, which is a scary thing to think about. I mean, that's often the language used for God's ingathering. That is, this beast is an anti-God. He's an anti-Christ. He's, he's coming to undo what God plans to do. The beast will speak blasphemy against God, it says. And it will, it, the text tells us early in Revelation that he'll turn many astray. The whole earth will worship, according to Revelation 13. They will worship because they are so persuaded by its promises of power 
and conquest. They will trust in its promise of prosperity. That this beast under the power of the serpent of old will use the same old tactics that were used in the garden. Did God really say, isn't there a better way to get what you want than how God has laid it out? You can be happy. It's understandable in a lot of ways that so many will be led astray. Even as we consider our text from last week, God's promises of conquest often seem so weak. That he promises to be a victor by a slain lamb. That doesn't look like power. That doesn't look like conquest. And in comparison, the beast that Revelation shows us looks very powerful, looks very compelling. So much so that even those who claim to follow the lamb at times will be drawn to this beast's beauty. That's right, is is, is beauty. I think the word beast can often lead us a bit astray because we think beast is ugly, but the whole world is following, probably not ugly, probably very compelling, probably very insidious, and that you don't know you're even being compelled by this beast. He's able to solidify the allegiance of many. The beast will be attractive, which if we think about how evil is presented in the rest of scriptures, that doesn't surprise us, does it? It comes from spaces that we would least expect. And it looks very enticing. So how do we know? How do we know when one has succumbed to the beast? Well, the second vision of the beast tells us in Revelation 13. You know because this person receives the mark of the beast. Now, I think a lot of modern interpretations often Uh, woo us into some sense of false confidence in this because none of us are going out and getting barcode tattoos. I don't think. Um, But that's often what we think of, right? But as Revelation 13 tells us that this mark of the beast will be something that people are required to buy and sell. It's something to do with the money systems of the world, and without this mark, you will be unable to survive according to the beast. I think the mark of the beast looks a lot less than a tattoo than just trust in some sort of currency. As one commentator says, it seems a large part of what it means to worship the beast is related to the worship of an economic system, the worship of wealth, the greed of acquisition. Furthermore, it is certainly intentional that the mark of the beast is given the number 666. While this may indeed refer to one of the Caesars or to one in the Roman Empire in general, and by extension, all empires, both political and financial, it was by no means an accident that twice in the Old Testament, King Solomon's gold is mentioned as being the weight of 666 talents. John tells us that Antichrist is always in the world. Daniel tells us that many beasts 
will rise up. And the mark of the beast is nothing less than to trust in the beast's power, to trust in the powers of this world. So a good barometer for us is to ask the question, what do we trust in? It's ironic that our own currency says, in God do we trust? And yet it is that same currency that I think we can all admit leads so many astray, that so often leads us astray if we're honest. And one cannot worship both God and money. I mean, wasn't this the ultimate demise of Israel? Yes, idolatry, but how was that idolatry shown forth? Well, God said, look at your poor. I can tell you're idolatrous because you're not taking care of them. You are filling your bellies. You are acquiring wealth. You are building your own kingdom while your own poor die in the streets of hunger. Throughout the prophets, God will come to the people and say, and this is why judgment will fall. Yes, you're idolatrous, but I can tell by your pocketbook. The mark of the beast is less like a tattoo and more like losing your cool over your bank statement. Less like a barcode and more like spending all of our time and energy concerned about our bottom line. Why is it so hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom? Because once you have a lot of the beast currency, it's really hard not to trust in it. And I know all of us are now thinking, I'm not that rich, but if you came in a vehicle this morning and there's a cell phone in your pocket, we are rich. We are rich. We have much that is capable of leading us astray. All right, the ushers are going to come take the offering. No. Is money itself evil? No. But as Paul exhorts Timothy, those who want to be rich fall into temptation and become ensnared by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. It goes on to say, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. By craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. This isn't a sermon about money. It's not a sermon about giving. But I think money in our day and in days of old is often the best indicator for where our allegiance lies. It often shows us what is closest to the heart. But the reality is, is the mark of the beast doesn't just have to be about a bank statement. You might trust in your own generosity. You might trust in your own ethical aptitude. Your security might just lie in the fact that you aren't as greedy as the person sitting next to you. The reality is, as much as we can compare ourselves to the people around us and think, at least I'm better than them. At least I love money a bit less than they love money, which just means that they, we think they have more money than we do. 
We are a far cry from blameless in word and deed like this 144,000 that we see singing. If we are those liable for God's justice, how do we sing this song? How does a song about God's judgment against the very things that we so often find ourselves guilty of, something that we can sing with joy and and fullness of heart. I don't know about you, but oftentimes as we sing, especially Psalms on Sunday morning, you get to a line, can I really sing this? (laughs) Is God's judgment really something that I'm excited about? How do we not be utterly terrified? Finally, I want to consider if we have this chorus of the victor and we have this judgment against the wicked, finally, we have a testimony of blood. So what does wealth, the quest for power and influence and trusting in our own virtue have in common? Self-preservation. Seeking to get to the top in any other way than that which God has ordained for us. Truly, the temptation of Adam in the garden. You know, you can be like God. Your way can be better than his. It can get you there too. I mean, it'd be easy to look at this 144,000 virgins and say, man, I'm a far cry for that. I guess, I guess that's what it takes to join the choir. Well, this too would be wrongheaded. This is what victory looks like, but it is not what it requires. That is, the chorus of the redeemed are redeemed not because of their blamelessness. They are blameless because they have been redeemed. John tells us what victory requires. He tells us what it takes to join this mighty chorus. He tells us what it takes to not fear God's judgment. What it takes to sing this song along with this multitude with full heart, without fear. According to Revelation, this is how they have conquered. They have conquered by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives, even unto death. This great army, this 144,000 that represents the fullness of God's people, have conquered not based on their virgin status, not based on their own blamelessness, not even based on their will to conquer, but based on the blood of the Lamb who was slain to purchase them. And by their testimony, that is their confession of faith, their confession of allegiance in the Lamb. Those that have placed their trust not in their own ability to win, not in the ways that this world says winning comes about, not by horses, not by chariots, not by princes that will just end up washed away in the waters of the final Red Sea but by trusting in the Lord, the lamb who was slain, the one who died 
that we might have life. And because they have conquered by trusting in the lamb, his purifying blood has made them like virgins, has made them blameless. Or as Paul says, like, pure, like a pure and spotless bride having been washed in the word. Jesus makes them blameless. He makes them conquerors. Beloved, the reason why this song in Revelation 15 is so unsingable and unlearnable for many is because God's justice will never be good news for those who are on the wrong side of it. But for you who confess the name of the Lord Jesus Christ before men, for you who have placed your trust in the Lamb, you can sing this song knowing that God's righteous judgment has already fallen. For the lamb was pierced for our transgressions. For the lamb was crushed for our iniquities. And upon the lamb was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. By his wounds, we are victorious. Beloved, we can look at our lives and say, I don't deserve to be part of that chorus. But by trusting in Christ, you can be assured that he has worn the mark of condemnation that you might wear the Father's name. You can be assured that he was counted amongst the transgressors, that you might be counted amongst the righteous. You can be assured that he has drank this cup of wrath that is referenced throughout Revelation, that you might drink the cup of blessing and that you might sing this song, that it might be your song, praising God for his justice and his mercy for by his mercy, we are spared. And by his justice, we can be assured that sin will end, (laughs) that death will find death. The justice of God for us is not to be feared. It is a thing to rejoice in. For only by this justice can we know that we will live eternally in a place that has no pain, that has no death, that has no tears, that has no sorrow, where we can finally say, I have no more sin. But even today, as you continue to deal with the corruption of sin and the reality that, yeah, we're still sinful, you can be assured that the guilt of sin has been taken care of. That you are victorious. For the battle has been won, as we heard last week. And so we battle from a place of victory. We follow the lamb even unto death, for death will not have the last word. The lamb has conquered and death has been swallowed up in victory. And as John sees and hears this great multitude, this full number of God's redeemed, in a very real way, he heard you. He heard you singing because even today, your life is hidden with Christ on high. And this is your song, the song of the righteous, those who have been purchased by the blood of our Savior.
great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. Namely, those righteous acts revealed in Jesus Christ for us, for you. Let's pray together.